I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Hello and welcome to Witch Please, a fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Marcel Cosman. Hey, Hannah, it's your birthday! It is, that's true. Let's talk about it. Let's talk about this marvelous day of your birth and why you are so great in the sorting chat. So should I be telling you why I'm so great? I love asking people to tell me things that they really love about themselves because, I mean, this might be just like a Pisces thing because I spend so much time in my head, but like every now and again, I'll be like, you know, this thing about me is really great and I don't know if everybody appreciates it. You know, like how charming it is that I call bubbly Bubbly water water Michael Michael Bublé's. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so on this glorious day of your birth, I want you to tell me some of your favorite things about you. And of course, I will tell you some of my favorite things about you in return, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? I've got... I have consistently just really interesting hair. Oh, you sure do. Yes. You just got a new haircut. Just got a new haircut. But like, sometimes... Okay, here's... I'm not sure if this is a good thing about me. So I said it's going to be birthday confessions. (laughs) But I'm going to tell it. Yeah, I'm going to tell you... I am extremely vain, and I really love looking through old selfies of myself, Mm -hmm. just looking at how great I've looked in various phases of my life. I particularly like looking back through old haircuts and, like, comparing them and being like, ooh, I've had so many fun haircuts. (laughs) So that's probably my best quality as a person. I think we can agree is haircuts. I... You know, Hannah, you said you don't know if this is a good thing. And I think that it is awesome that you think you are beautiful. I think that that is something that a lot of us could do a better job of. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a project. Like you kind of got to intentionally shift your your mindset and like really teach yourself. But like I went through a process of really deliberately transforming my aesthetics, both in terms of what I wanted to look like, but also in terms of what I thought was beautiful. Um, and a surprise side effect uh, was uh, my own my own emergent vanity. And it's great. <laughs> and I think everybody, I think everybody really should just like learn to get really into yourself. Yeah. Would you say that selfies are an important part of that project? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. I had a really interesting experience recently where my friend Amy Morrison, who is a professor at Waterloo University, she was teaching a grad seminar this past semester on the selfie. And she invited a number of people who she thinks of as people who like are well versed in the selfie to come to her class, including me. So I got to like go to her class and talk to her about my own selfie practice. And in preparation for it, I downloaded my own Instagram history and looked through the history of my own selfies and made a PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I love that a lot. You know, sometimes when I go through old photos of myself, I'll be like, why didn't I post these gorgeous pictures of myself three years ago. It's like, why did I see this picture and think like, oh no, I don't, I don't, I don't want to post that. One of the brain tricks for convincing yourself that you are hot is looking back at old pictures and seeing how hot you were then mm -hmm. and remembering that at the time you felt terrible about how you looked. Totally. And therefore deducing, I'm good at outthinking myself, and therefore <laughs> deducing that if you were wrong then, you're probably wrong now. So why not actually just enjoy knowing that you look good now instead of always having to do it in retrospect? That's great advice, Hannah. Yeah, thanks. So let, let me tell you some of my favorite things about you. So... Not only do I agree that you are very beautiful, I wouldn't call you vain. I would say that you are precisely the correct amount of into yourself. <laughs> um, I think you give really good advice that always comes from a place of like care and consideration of, you know, the person where the where the person you're giving the advice to is at. Oh, glad to hear it because I love telling people what to do. I know you do, but you're also good at it. <laughs> um, and you are very smart and you have an impeccable ability to, and I've, I have, we've talked about this before, but you have an impeccable ability to start answering a question, not knowing what you're going to say <laughs> and still like, like magically pulling together, like an extremely insightful and thoughtful point, which I really admire because I can't, I don't. I can't do that unless I've written it out first. <laughs> yeah, I I absolutely figure out what I think by talking, which, you know what, is why podcasting was made for me. You're a natural. I'm a natural. Well, listen, I'm really glad that we make this podcast together, and I hope you're having the best birthday. I'm having a lovely birthday. All the better now that it included being ritually praised by one of my favorite people. <laughs> Anytime.
find makes revising a lot easier? It's writing in my books. Hey, let's see what we highlighted in previous episodes in revision. Okay, Marcel, I see from the script that you have a lot to say about marginalia. So much. Not surprising. (laughs) So for coach's sake, could we maybe keep this section on the short side? Oh, what a good birthday idea. And you know what? Since we're tackling marginalia, which is all about readerly engagement with text, I think that we would do quite well to think back first to our episode about fan studies with Amanda K. Allen. In that episode, Amanda explained that fan fiction is a great demonstration of readers' responses to and analysis of the author's canonical texts. And for this reason, she encouraged us to think about fan fiction as symbiotic with the canon. So this means that we can think about fan fiction as being in conversation with instead of other or lesser than the canon. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have to talk about our print culture episode. Of course where we went on at length about the fetishization of the book as an object. For example, we looked at the ways owning books came to be associated with class and status. We also took a pretty close look at the different kinds of print culture that appear in the wizarding world. And Marcel, if I recall correctly, I believe you made a chart. I did make a chart. I did. I did. And, you know, it would have been very appropriate to revisit the chart and uh, annotate it, if you will. Ooh. Update it a little bit. Very meta. Um, but there just, there isn't time. There so, isn't time. We're in a huge hurry here. So what if we, what if we just include a link to our beautiful chart of print culture in the wizarding world so that people can take a peek if they're curious or need a refresher? I love that. Yeah, take a gander. The other episode we should probably briefly summarize was our episode on archival studies. Mm -hmm. In that conversation, we considered the role of the library, among other institutions, as a powerful discursive producer of knowledge based on its systems of organizing and controlling access to information. That is to say, acquiring, organizing, and controlling access to books. Indeed, there may be no greater example of the fetishization of the book as an object than the fraught relationship that libraries have with marginalia. Ooh. It is forbidden. It is anathema to write in, highlight, dog ear, or in any other way, mark up a library book. I mean, we got a scene of that in this very book, don't we? We sure do. Madam Pince, mm-hmm. So mad when she sees the Half-Blood Prince's shenanigans. Exactly. And yet, libraries will in fact purchase entire collections of books for their special collections departments specifically because of who annotated them. That is quite the irony. It really is. Let's skip on over to Transfiguration class and talk about why. I would love that. You know what I find makes reading a lot more enjoyable? Ooh, what? Transforming my books into rich and ongoing conversations with the text itself. Let's talk about why in Transfiguration class. Hannah, I have a question for you. Mm. Who taught you how to annotate your books? It's such a good question. And it's one that is really tricky to 
answer because I can't remember a time when I didn't write in my books. Mm -hmm. Like as a child, I colored in them. I wrote around the edges. That must have been something that was modeled to me. I'm sure in part it was modeled to me by the fact that we had other books at home that were also written in. And so I knew that was a thing one could do with books. And I didn't get in trouble for writing in my own books. That was fine. So I knew that was all right. But I can't remember ever not thinking it was okay to write in a book that you owned. Yeah, preparing for this episode has been such a such a strange experience of thinking through these practices that I thought I thought about, but actually I haven't even thought about thinking about them. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't even considered thinking about critically thinking about thinking about them. Thinking about them. So in my reading and preparing for this for this episode, it has occurred to me that it just seems like we've been writing on our reading materials for as long as we as a species have been reading. And, you know, this maybe shouldn't come as a surprise since the ancient Greeks like literally had to scrape off their reading material in order to have something to write on. Because even before the ancient Greeks, right, like the Mesopotamians are the ones who invented writing and they were carving into clay. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Incredible. Which is like, by definition, a like malleable surface that like the thing that you can, that you read off is always also the thing that you write into. Like there's a word for that, right? There's a word for this that I know about from the context of like medieval manuscripts, which is palimpsests. Mm-hmm. A palimpsest is like where somebody has written on a manuscript and then washed away that writing and then written something else, but you can still kind of see the trace underneath. But is that is that an older word? I can't remember if it comes from Latin via Greek or it comes from Greek via Latin, but it originates from the ancient Greek tablets, which were these like wax-coated slabs that they used to write on. And it meant that just like the Mesopotamians, they were always having to smooth out what had been written before in order to write something new. Like a whiteboard. Like a whiteboard. And like you're saying, this practice carried over all the way into medieval times, right? With parchment and papyrus. Mm -hmm. And even though by the time we get to papyrus, it's relatively cheap and available. And so the people who are writing don't need to erase what had been written before with quite the same vigor. <laughs> It was still very common to just like wash off your parchment or your papyrus in order to uh, to write on it afresh. Yeah. I mean, it might have been cheaper and easier than like, you know, etching laws into a huge clay slab. But they were still, <laughs> you know, like paper doesn't get cheap and easy until like way, way later, like Industrial Revolution era. So like it makes sense that like it was a comparatively luxury product, mm -hmm. you wouldn't waste it. Yeah, exactly. And so, so since the very technology of writing seems to incorporate writing on top of something that we have already read, mm. I am boldly suggesting that the ancient tradition of reusing writing media has led us as a species to think of reading materials 
just inherently is something to write on. That makes so much sense that there was no division. Like, the thing you read was the thing you wrote on. You know, before print was invented and people were just writing out manuscripts with quills (laughs) and then drawing funny pictures of cats in the illustrations that illuminated those manuscripts, it was a very select number of people. And there still would not have been a division between reading and writing. I mean, they were writing marginalia in their own books. Precisely. I should just clarify at this point that my primary source for this episode is uh, Heather Jackson's book, Marginalia, Readers Writing in Books, published in 2001. And in the book, Jackson is, uh, she's referring specifically to the English speaking world. And I want to echo that, like, this is my only area of expertise. I am not equipped to speak of the reading and writing practices of literally any other language or culture. (laughs) Anyway, so Jackson, in her book, Marginalia, Readers Writing in Books, she makes the argument that with, and I'm quoting here, very, very few exceptions end quote. The way that we annotate our books today reproduces centuries of reader behavior, like we were saying, predating the birth of print back to manuscript culture in the Middle Ages and before. And she explains that the history of marginalia is one in which, and I'm going to quote again here, the conventions of scholarly annotation, so these are the the religious scholars who were writing illuminated manuscripts, The conventions of scholarly annotation spread to the secular vernacular texts and were gradually exercised by wider and wider ranges of readers. So started out small, spread more broadly. This makes a lot of sense if we think about, for example, um, the Renaissance as a period that was about sort of the rise of university culture and the rise of like reading classics, for example. Um, We talk a lot in the publishing program here where I work about Aldous Minutius, who is like this really important Italian publisher who published a lot of the like early paperback editions of classics that were like specifically made affordable so that students could buy them. Mm -hmm. And we're talking like, I think all this is like 17th century. Um, But he also published his books with really big margins because the students were going to write in the margins. Exactly. This is just going to keep coming back. We're going to keep coming back to these same points because it turns out that the history of marginalia is like largely a variation on a theme. So clearly, as literacy spread, so did the practice of annotation, and it was just commonplace for people who were owning books to use the blank pages in the books, to use the margins, to use the blank leaves at the beginning and at the ends. And there are also periods of time when there are blank pages inserted in between the pages, and people wrote on those. So to clarify, I'm not suggesting that writing in books is always the same thing as annotating the books. Oh, people would just use it as paper. Exactly, yeah. And that brings us back again to the idea of the palimpsest. So Hannah, you brought up the Renaissance. Let's uh, let's get into some time periods here. So until the 19th century, annotation widely practiced among the literate community. So widely practiced, but a private activity, okay? So like you're saying, the students, they own the books. They're writing in the books, 
right? And so you as a person who owns a book are writing your thoughts about the book in your book, right? Okay, I am about to introduce some infamous Marcel romanticism shade. Yeah, for the listeners, Marcel famously detests the romantics. Every single one of them. Every single one. I mean, they were history's great fuckboys, so I don't blame you. (laughs) Oh, yeah. So, annotation up until this point, widely practiced in private. But in 1819, all of that changes because a mediocre white man decides that his annotations are so good, he should probably publish them. And thus, annotations became a marketable commodity. (laughs) Which mediocre white romantic poet monetized annotations, Marcel? A son of a bitch named Samuel Taylor Coleridge. (laughs) Is he the child something to the tower something? No, he's the rhyme of the ancient mariner. So listen, even though the practice of annotating your own books was super common and all kinds of people did it, this guy gets credit for making annotations a publishable object and for making the term, I'm not even kidding, for making the term marginalia a household name. Okay, but he can't have like made up the term marginalia. It's like Latin or something, right? It is. Marginalia like literally means in the margins, but uh, Coleridge used the term capaciously to refer to notes written anywhere in, in a book and not just in the margins. Okay, so marginalia is like even if you write under a word. Yes, precisely. I'm okay with that. I will forgive him for that. Oh, how dare you? you Sorry. Oh, you're canceled, Hannah. <laughs> And because Coleridge was, I guess, like pretty good at annotating books, he was this really influential figure who suddenly shifted the fundamental nature of annotating from a personal private practice to a self-conscious and potentially public practice. So Marcel, here's a question that I have for you. What's the difference between... Coleridge publishing his marginalia as a, like, act of making a previously private activity into a public and marketable one, and, say, our medieval scribes maybe writing a little note in the margins of the manuscript that they're writing, where, like, they're working on a manuscript and then a cat puts its paw in the manuscript. and then <laughs> I love those. And then they write a little <laughs> note that's like, so sorry, cat stepped here. What's the difference? Capitalism, baby. (laughs) In the one, it's just a thing people did. And in the other, it's a marketable commodity. I'm going to take this line from you. There is nothing more white man than assuming that your personal musings and thoughts on a text are worthy of public circulation. Not just public circulation, selling them. Like, that's the difference, because people have been circulating their thoughts on texts the whole time. Sure. He has this, I guess, intervention, for lack of better, a better word, intrusion (laughs) into the history of marginalia. So does that moment where he publishes his own marginalia, does it influence the way readers annotate texts? So short answer to that question is no. Then why are we talking about him? Because he did fundamentally change the imagined audience 
of annotations. Oh, that's so interesting. That's his contribution to marginalia as a sport. He turned it into a spectator sport instead of an at-home you and your Game Boy. He shifted how people thought about annotation from notes to themselves to notes to a potential other reader. Yes. So let's take this opportunity to clarify what marginalia is, because I think certain types of literary and media studies scholars we like have in mind what marginalia is, but it may well be that not everybody knows what the heck we're talking about. I'm ready because I think I know what it is. I think it's writing in the margins, but I bet it's more complicated than that. Yes and no. Here's how Jackson defines marginalia, okay? She says, and I quote, the essential and defining character of the marginal note throughout its history is that it is a responsive kind of writing permanently anchored to pre-existing written words. And further, in order to understand marginalia, they need to be read in conjunction with that pre-existing text to which they respond. So remember earlier when we were talking about people writing in their books and just using their books as paper, right? So there are lots and lots of examples throughout history of people practicing writing or writing a draft of a letter in their book. That's not a marginal note. That's not marginalia. Or even like using family Bibles to record births and deaths or like people wrote in books for a lot of different reasons. That's right. But you're right. This clarification of like, it's anchored to those words, and it has to be read in conjunction with those words to understand it, that that really clarifies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which isn't to say that, like, all of these notes and all of these books are going to be interesting for all kinds of reasons. They just don't always count as marginalia. Gotcha. So since we're talking about the Half-Blood Prince in today's episode, eventually, I thought that I would raise this point that Jackson makes because I think it's very cool. This is my pedagogy. I thought this was cool. She says, and I quote, writing notes in response to a text appears to be a habit acquired at school, end quote. And so this comes from uh, her survey of books annotated by children. And she found that preschool children do not annotate. So even if they have the ability to read and write, they will like, they'll write their names. They will like color in the pictures like you were saying you did as a kid. That's exactly the examples. Like my early examples of writing in books were not annotating the books. I wasn't like an intriguing point. (laughs) Even if you don't have that language, like, like children prior to school, They don't think of books as like something that you would respond to. So you wouldn't be like, I like this idea. Yeah, and you do other things, right? You interact with the book in other ways. But that particular kind of like your job as a reader is to have an opinion about the text in that particular way. That is something that we are taught. Yeah. So here are some of the things that we learn in school. These are some of the ways that marginalia is implicitly taught to us. Okay. Definitions. Very common for people to um, find when there's a word that they don't know what it means in a book, they look it up, and then they add a definition in the margin. 
Um, she she says solutions for math problems, which I find hilarious. I assume that these are math texts. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, otherwise it wouldn't be marginalia, according to her definition. I know, right? Like, it's not just like, <laughs> it's not like a math, a math solution. To a textual problem? Okay, so then other things will be notes from class. So, like, identifying, like, the author's birth or death dates. And then we get into our, like, rich world of marginalia with comments on specific passages. And so this is going to sound really obvious, but I still feel like it's important to say because we are doing this exercise of not taking these things for granted. But Jackson does note that in the body of the text, this is a quote, different functions are assigned to different spaces, end quote, and that readers typically mirror the conventions of print. Okay. So... The top margin, you know, where you might normally find, like, the chapter title? Yeah, or like a running header. Mm-hmm. That's usually where readers will write notes that summarize the contents of the whole page. Oh, my God, of course. Because that's where you would go for, like, a, this is the page where this happens. Exactly. So that when you're flipping through, your eye's already going to go there to look for an indication of what that page is. Okay, amazing. Yeah. Yep. The bottom, and so then the bottom margin is often used for notes, just like footnotes. And the thing that I find just so adorable, I don't know why I find this so cute. I find marginalia so cute. But readers will often mimic the footnote marking system. And so they'll put like a little dot and then a little dot at the bottom or like a little diamond and then a little diamond at the bottom. Oh my God, I've absolutely done that. So here's a question. Do you have any sense of which came first, the print conventions or the marginalia conventions? Like, did people write at the top because that's where they were used to the chapter title or the running header being, and they wrote at the bottom because that's where they were used to seeing footnotes? Or were the conventions of print responding to the conventions of annotation? That is such an interesting question. First of all, I don't have an answer for you. <laughs> but I'm going to but the reason why I think it's such an interesting question is because Jackson does tell us that the conventions of marginalia, they have followed the technological developments from paper to digital, right? So so for example, when I was um when I was reading this when I was reading this book, to prepare for the episode, I had opened it. It's an ebook. I had opened it from the U of A library website. I hadn't downloaded it. I hadn't even like saved a chapter. I was just reading it online and I was able to highlight passages. <laughs> I was like, yes, of course. Of course you could. Exactly. Because the ways in which we want to mark up a text, we want to annotate the text, those desires have made their way into digital technology. I mean, Marcel, I don't want to take us too far down the the, the winding road of what comes first, technology or behaviors, but I think it's a really <laughs> it's a really interesting question because like, yeah, you know, we highlighting became a technology of ebooks because people wanted to highlight. But there's a lot of other things that we want to do to ebooks that we can't do because the technology is not there. So we're also, you know, we've got our sort of human impulses and then we've got the actual limitations of the technology. I'm, this is going to be a research question for me is like, 
which came first, the conventions of the page versus the conventions of annotation. Um, but I will tell you a convention that I do on my books all the time that I almost never see in a book unless it's like a wacky, creatively printed book is I write down the sides of the page. Writing in the margins. Yes. And let me tell you that Jackson refers to this as the universally favored space for readers running commentary in English language books. And when margins are too small, as often happens with like a cheap mass-produced book. Just trying to cram all as many words onto the page as possible. Itty bitty print, itty bitty margins, is that when the margins are too small, readers will use pretty much any available space that they can find on the page to write in, except between the lines of the printed text, like except in between the words. And can you guess why? Okay, my instinctive guess would be that it's too hard to see at a glance when you're flipping back through a book. Mm-hmm. I think that's very logical. That is not the claim that Jackson makes. She says that readers only ever trespass, that's her word, trespass into the text itself to gloss words or to do word-by-word definitions. That is really interesting and actually not the case for me. <gasps> oh. Are there other examples of like fairly consistent reader behaviors when they're marking things up? Yeah, definitely. She does she does talk about different symbols and markings, and I won't obviously recite all of them, but a couple that I think we and our listeners will totally recognize will be underlining naturally, but also where instead of underlining, like if you're looking at a big block of text that is really pertinent, you want to like keep that in mind for some reason, you don't necessarily underline each line. You might put a single vertical line on one or both sides in order to draw attention to that text. So that's pretty common. Oh, and that's something that um word processors have mimicked, right? That like, if there's like a an edit or a change or something, like Microsoft Word will like draw that line along the side so that you can quickly see. Yeah, I know. Cute, huh? And, uh, and asterisks, which are those little stars. And then they're called fists. They're called manicules. <laughs> I haven't found the word manicule anywhere, but <laughs> I believe you. My understanding is that there are different terms for the little finger pointy guy. It's just a little finger that's the pointing. The little finger pointy guy, the manicule. But he's gone. When's the last time you saw a manicule? Called a fist. It's absolutely not called a fist. This is wild. You've been reading lesbian print history. <laughs> Wink. I personally feel like the little pointy guy, manicule and or fist, has been replaced by the arrow, but sometimes it's really hard to Google search these things. Like, is fist replaced with arrow? Surprisingly, doesn't turn up a whole lot of useful content, so. <laughs> and then the last thing that I want to note is um, that readers will typically use check marks to show agreement. So we know there are these practices and they've got a long history and a remarkable level of consistency and, you know, they they seem to be, like, almost kind of an innate response to books. So why do we do it? Like, what do we get out of writing our books? That is such a great question, Hannah. 
So you tell me. Let's get personal before we get critical. Why do you, Hannah McGregor, write in your books? What do you get out of it? I write in my books for a lot of different reasons. As a university student, I wrote in my books as a way to keep notes that would help me study for tests and write essays. So if we were studying a particular poem, it made sense to like go in and like actually write the things that we were learning on the poem so that I could see the connection between the poem and those ideas that I might want to draw on again or come back to. Sometimes as a reader, I find the act of marking up actually helps me pay attention, like even when I'm just reading privately, particularly if I'm reading something that's particularly dense or challenging, that like highlighting or underlining can be a way to just like help focus my brain in on what I'm actually trying to engage with. I would say the primary way I use margin marginalia these days is as a personal shorthand that summarizes the key points that I want to pull out of a text and come back to. Mm -hmm. This is in keeping with what Jackson has found in her, you know, massive survey of marginalia through the ages. So she's quite clear that she doesn't consider her study to be exhaustive in any way. She's like, you know, very classic scholar move. I hope mine is the first. Not the definitive, but the point that she makes is that uh, the consistent why seems to be interaction. And that so consistent is this demonstration of interaction that she finds it sort of surprising that we ever had this like scholarly assumption that the reader was like a passive receptacle for the thing in the book, right? She's like, anybody who's ever annotated a book knows that the reader doesn't just passively absorb. The reader, like, engages and interacts, even if you're not physically writing. Maybe just to clarify for listeners, I, I, I take that what Jackson is referring to here, particularly as a, like, history and literary scholarship, which has had a tendency to really not consider the role of the reader at all and to assume that, like, textual meaning lies in the text and is projected in one direction from text into reader. Yes, exactly. Yes, that is a very, a very important and useful clarification. So the fact that readers have this tendency to write back to the text, and often a lot of these examples are very charming, but addressing the author directly or sometimes saying, like, calling the author oh, you. <laughs> you son of a bitch. It clearly indicates that reading is an intimate exchange. Okay, but it's not a conversation because the text can't respond. True. So when you are writing marginalia, you are not in conversation with the author. That's true because the author has said one thing and you have responded. There's no actual back and forth. But when we study marginalia, it does feel like we're looking at a conversation. And so this is where I think we get into the like the really fun stuff of understanding marginalia as an object of study. So Jackson, drawing from Marcel Proust, says, and I quote, the text expresses itself to the reader who responds as culture, education, reading practice, and so forth 
permit, end quote. So the relationship between text and its annotations can tell us all kinds of things about readers and their reading practices and about circulation and changing cultural norms and attitudes. And so even if it's not a conversation as you are engaged with the book, we as critics and scholars who look at marginalia in relation to those anchored words are actually kind of seeing conversation and changing norms. I mean, that does also make me think about the interesting experience of returning to a book that you have already annotated and then being able to be in conversation with both the text and your previous annotations. Like, have you ever annotated your own past annotations? Oh, yes. It's so embarrassing. (laughs) Just writing like, oh, dear, sweet, 10 years ago, me. You don't know how texts work. (laughs) Okay, so... We're both materialists, Marcel, so I feel like I already know the answer to this, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How is the value of marginalia evaluated? Yeah, these answers are not going to surprise you. Marginalia tends to be valued when the writer of the marginalia is famous or important, right? So like these standout figures in history like Coleridge. So even though Coleridge is literally not doing anything unusual, the British Library will purchase his entire annotated works. You're so mad. Which is fine. We also tend to value marginalia when it is the author revising their own work for a new edition. So that tends to be very exciting. And Jackson tells us that we do tend to value the, if you will, marginal reader, (laughs) like not a big deal reader, just a regular person reader, in situations where the historical record is scant. So where the marginalia is like a key insight into a place or a time that we don't know very much about. Gotcha. Gotcha. But of course, as individuals, and so, you know, not libraries and other kinds of historical repositories of <laughs> of discursive knowledge production. But as individuals, we will also tend to find enjoyment out of other people's marginalia for, you know, personal reasons that you can't always explain. Like sometimes it's just delightful. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering, Hannah, can you think of an instance in which you encountered some marginalia or an annotation that brought you joy? I mean, I think a lot of the time the writing in books that brings me joy would not technically be marginalia, according to Jackson's definition, because it's more likely to be, say, an inscription in the book. Like, I have these beautiful hardcover books that my grandfather's grandfather got in the 19th century in Edinburgh that when you finished grades at school, you would be gifted a book by the school. And so they've got these plates in the front that have been put in and then and then written in by hand is his name and the, the subjects that he had finished. And the books themselves, like, I doubt anybody read these books because they were more <laughs> about sort of, you know, he was training to be an engineer and it was more about helping a young professional amass a leather-bound library. So the only, you know, writing in it are these book plates at the front. But I certainly have had that experience of, like, buying a used copy of a school book and finding somebody else's interpretation of the poem written in there. And just, it is so fun to have a trace of another reader in the book like that. (laughs) Totally. 
I would agree that my favorite marginalia is also not technically marginalia either. It's notes or inscriptions, that kind of thing. My mom actually showed me one of my grandmother's Shakespeare readers from when she was, when my grandmother was in elementary school. Um, So she was born in like 1937 or so. So she would have been like 14 or 15 at the time. And um, my grandma, whose name was Joan Clenstaber, had written Joan Clenstaber Loves, and then my grandfather's name, Kenneth Marisette. So for me, it was lovely to see that. But for my mom, she actually referred to this handwritten note as evidence that her parents had actually been in love when they got married because, you know, like 60 plus years of marriage and patriarchy and capitalism and illness and life in general sometimes made it very difficult for my grandma to show affection for my grandfather. And so having this like note where she had written that she she loves her boyfriend, it's such a 14 or 15 year old thing to do. (laughs) Anyway, it's really nice. So it's interesting to note here, Marcel, that the examples that we both pulled sort of instinctively as, you know, the ones that felt sentimental to us were not what Jackson considers to be marginalia. So do you think Jackson is being overly restrictive with her definition? Or, you know, my my other hypothesis here, which I'm just going to throw out because why not, is that the kind of writing that is, you know, book plates or epigraphs or, you know, dedications, you know, where like you gift somebody a book and and write in it, that is writing that you have done for someone else. And so we as readers, even of those older textual annotations, might still feel addressed by them. But a lot of marginalia, the kind that is in conversation with the text, is often like quite difficult to engage with. Like it takes a specialized set of skills for a scholar to like make sense of other people's marginalia because it's talking to the text, right? It's not necessarily talking to you. So like I'm less likely to have a sentimental attachment to seeing that somebody else underlined a particular line. That is a great point. So I am going to take responsibility for the binary between what is and is not marginalia because Jackson gives like a pretty generous definition. She doesn't say what it's not, whereas I'm, for the sake of this episode, very willing to say what it's not, but I still want to talk about those things. (laughs) Like the book itself is full of all different kinds of annotations and all different kinds of examples of the ways in which readers do respond. And I think that a lot of the things that if we were invested in binary thinking, we could spend a long time debating like, well, would that count as marginalia or would it not? And I think that for the purposes of our conversation today, just to like get us ready to think about Snape's marginalia in the Half-Blood Prince, I think it's not necessary to be restrictive with our definition. I think it's good enough to just have a sense of like, marginalia is when someone is writing in response 
to the text in some way or another. And we can't always know to what degree they were prompted by the text. So like, there might be a reason why that particular book was the book that your grandmother wrote that she loved your grandfather in it. And we can't necessarily know how proximate that particular piece of writing was to the meaning of the text. Mm-hmm. Yes, precisely. Exactly. That's so interesting. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You know who never stays in the margins? Owls. That couldn't make less sense. (laughs) (laughs) So what I've done in order to, like, set some things in motion for owls and our conversation about Snape and the Half-Blood Prince and, in particular, the marginalia is um, I've just thrown out some questions that we might consider. So... What do you think? For whose benefit did Snape annotate the potions book? Oh, my God. I mean, this is, it's already such a good question. (laughs) It's so good. I'm allowed to say it's a good question because I didn't write it. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, because when you were talking about Coleridge and the sort of, like, cocky, romantic poet vibe of, like, what I think is so interesting and everybody's going to want to read it. That is the vibe I get from the Half-Blood Prince's annotations. Ooh! They seem to me to be speaking to an anticipated or imagined audience. They at least are speaking directly back to the text. You know, he, he, he writes in his annotations, like, this is silly, don't do this, blah, blah, blah. But, like, I think because of the way that it's often written in the second person, right, he writes instructions. Yes. Yeah. Maybe those instructions are for himself, but they certainly leave you, the reader, feeling addressed. Mm-hmm. So it's really difficult to say what his intentions were. But there is a sort of, like, showiness to the tone of the annotations of the Half-Blood Prince. God, and the giving himself a name. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? That it is performative in a way that suggests that you're performing for someone. Definitely. Definitely. Yes. I mean, it speaks to, I think... That really interesting double-sidedness of marginalia, which is that not unlike a lot of journaling practices, there is often a sort of double address of you are talking to yourself, but you are perhaps also imagining a future reader or another hypothetical reader, or maybe even writing to the diary itself, right? So like he's writing back to the textbook, 
That is the conversation he's engaged in. But he is writing in such a performative way that is about like asserting his own expertise over and against the expertise of the book that it does seem to not even seem to it overtly invites a feeling of being addressed because that's how we see Harry responding as soon as he as he starts reading this marginalia. Yeah, yeah. So I want to backtrack to when you said that you got a real like romantic white fuckboy vibe. So Coleridge evidently felt that his marginalia was cool enough, insightful enough to monetize and publish, right? The Half-Blood Prince's marginalia is not only scathing of the Potions textbook, but is also like invested in doing it better. So what I'm wondering is why not write and publish a new potions book? Yeah. I mean, that gets really tricky and I think gets us in some ways into like Snape's personal psychology, Mm -hmm. which is a, you know, a tricky thing to unpack because, (laughs) you know, he's such a gothic archetype in so many ways that his behavior often doesn't make naturalist psychological sense. It makes genre sense. Gotcha. Like, he's villainous because that's the role that he needs to play in this particular scene. He's nefarious because somebody needs to be in the basement being moody and swooping around in a cloak, so why not him? (laughs) Whereas if you actually sat down and, like, tried to understand his behavior as a human, Mm. anybody would be like, absurd, fire him immediately. Yes, yes. But certainly this book... Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince, there's a reason this book is named for the Half-Blood Prince, right? There's a bunch of other things that it kind of could have more obviously been named, right? Like the more obvious, overarching, you know, Dumbledore's death and Draco's turn to the dark side. That's the wrong property. You know, the revelation about the Horcruxes and the retrieval of the memory. And like, why is this book named after the marginalia Harry finds in an old potions textbook? Wow. You know what? I have never even considered the title of this book before, but you're so right. Like, why isn't it Harry Potter and the... Real small boat. And the tiny boat. Harry Potter and the... And the mysterious Horcrux, or like Harry Potter and the riddle of the Horcrux. So something really key is happening here in terms of the invocation of a young Snape via his marginalia. And I think narratively part of what is happening is that we are being invited to think more about who Snape was when he was young and what he was up to. We've already sort of begun to have that hinted to us via Harry seeing his memories in the previous book. And here we're being invited even more deeply into this consideration of like, Snape was young, he was a student, he was at the school, what was he like? What was he up to? And that 
is like narratively central because we have to grapple both with the nature of Snape's betrayal of his parents and regret and his role as, you know, a mole within the Voldemort's followers. Like there's all of these ways in which Snape's personal past is going to become or continue to be really deeply important to what happens next in this story. And so the marginalia in a lot of ways here is another way of evoking Snape's personal past beyond the favorite narrative way that these books do it, which is... The pensive? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of less interested in the question of why Snape wrote his marginalia than I am interested in the question of why a young Snape is being evoked via the act of annotation. Here's my question in response to your question, Hannah. Hermione tells Harry, I can't remember if she uses this exact word, but she basically tells Harry that the book is a distraction, right? That the marginalia is a distraction. The Half-Blood Prince is a distraction. Yeah, he's supposed to be focusing on getting that memory back. Yeah, and he doesn't. The Half-Blood Prince provides no use for that task. The title of the book explicitly disagrees with Hermione. That's so interesting that she's like, you're focusing on the wrong thing. But is she wrong? Or is the Half-Blood Prince just a distraction? The Half-Blood Prince is not a distraction because... The Half-Blood Prince is going to kill Dumbledore at the end of this book. Like, the big climax to which this book is leading is Dumbledore dying. It's Dumbledore being killed. Yes. Yes. And Dumbledore is killed by the Half-Blood Prince. And his death is the act that prompts Harry discovering that Snape is the Half-Blood Prince. Right? Because Snape yells at him (laughs) as he flees the grounds. That remains like the least believable part of this entire book series for me is when he's like, you dare use my spells against me? I'm the Half-Blood Prince. By the way, that was me. (laughs) 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 It's extremely silly, but... Is the Half-Blood Prince actually a red herring? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Are we being, like, distracted? I think what complicates that really fascinating question is the conversation we had with Lydia about hauntology and the way that the Half-Blood Prince exists as this kind of ghost that is haunting the margins of the book. This figure who is like extremely present via his marginalia, but also not present and that they're constantly trying to sort of guess at who he is and guess at what the significance, what his significance is, you know, Harry's determination that it must be his father, it must be somebody he has a personal relationship with, and Hermione's insistence that it must be dangerous and she shouldn't trust it, you know, the marginalia, like, functions like a ghost story. And, you know, the conclusion is the conclusion where they, like, Find out who the ghost is. You know, is that revelation, like, is it narratively important? Is it thematically important? Those are two different questions. They are, yeah. Right? So narratively, it's actually doing very little. And narratively, we can think of it as a red herring. Thematically, 
is it a red herring? I don't think so. Tell me why. One reason is that it is mirroring multiple other examples throughout the series in which books invoke the ghosts or the past selves of people who have been lost in a way that signifies the way that Harry and his classmates while living in the present are also living in a palimpsestic relationship to a very recent past. Mm -hmm. That they feel like everything they're doing is new, but in fact, what they're doing is layered over a very recent war, a very recent set of deaths, a very recent set of traumas. And part of what they are doing as they grow up is coming to understand those things and understand that they are walking over this recent history and and they are in conversation with it in a way that they don't necessarily realize that they are until they get old enough to start recognizing that conversation. And that's going to be important in the next book yes. as well. Because yes. Dumbledore is, they're, they're going to be guided by the ghost of Dumbledore via his own marginal mm. annotations. Like mm. it's going to continue to be this way that people are visited by the past that was made really literal in the second book via... Tom Riddle's diary. Explicitly not a journal, his diary. <laughs> you know, I think, why marginalia rather than something else? And I think it does get so much at that idea of, like, we are writing and overwriting. That, like, what is happening here is as much about the past as it is about the present. And Dumbledore is showing Harry that that is the case throughout this book by insisting that he needs to go back. That, like, in order to understand what's going to come next, you have to go back. You have to understand where Voldemort came from. You have to understand what has happened. You have to find these old memories. And then meanwhile, here's Harry engaged in conversation with a palimpsest, with this trace of the past that is itself sort of an overwriting. And so I think even though narratively it does almost fuck all, it speaks so much to what this book is doing with its sense of our complex relationships to history and our complex relationships to the selves we used to be and memory and trauma and all of these things that were just starting in this book to like really recognize is like so so central to everything that's happening. Hannah, is that a convincing reading? Are we convinced? Kind of convinced myself as I was saying it. I am convinced. Oh my god. So it's interesting then to think about how much Harry loves the prince. Mm. Mm -hmm. Because he okay. does love the prince. He does. He does. I think we can maybe take a moment to, to consider Harry's love for the prince and Harry's love for the marginalia, right? Like, sometimes there will be a running commentary in a book that you have taken out of the library or whatever. And sometimes that commentary is so pervasive and so rich that it becomes a kind of character and you 
develop all kinds of thoughts and imaginings about this character. And so I, and so I, I wonder, with Harry, we see him in the situation where once Snape has found out that Harry is using his book, Snape accuses him of being a cheat, right? But I think that Harry's love for and kind of obsession with the prince is less about the fact that the prince is helping him do well at potions. And yeah, more, it's more complicated than that. Yeah, yeah. He's like witnessing and participating in an intimate exchange between the prince and the potions book, the prince and this text that he's always really struggled with, even though, as listeners have previously pointed out, Snape always puts the instructions on the board. But Harry's always struggled with potions. All of a sudden, here's this person who's like, that's not the right way to do it. Here's the right way to do it. I mean, it speaks to what you were saying about the sort of conversational nature, the the way that we as readers of other people's marginalia will feel like we are being part of a conversation. And that that feeling of of being, you know, interpolated into that conversation, of being hailed by that conversation or addressed by that conversation, whether or not it was written for us, you know, the conversation between the prince and the book is such that Harry feels drawn into it as though he is also being addressed. And the fact that a voice from the past speaking to him is one that he immediately wants to be his father is um, really sad. (laughs) So much of these books are about trauma. And we go all the way back to that episode we did with Lucia and that conversation about like textual gaps and the unspeakability of trauma and how you can find how trauma lingers in terms of what is not said. And it's so interesting, I think, to think about marginalia as like speaking into those gaps a little bit. And in this case of like sort of speaking into the text, Harry's longing for this relationship, which if nothing else prepares us to be extra sad when Dumbledore does. And when the person who kills Dumbledore is... Is the person who he thought was speaking to him. Wow. Marginalia. What a bummer. We can't end on a bummer. No, we can't. So you know what I want to share lives rent-free in my brain all the time? When Harry gives Snape Ron's potions book, saying it's his, and the spell-checking quill that Ron has used to write his name for some reason. (laughs) He used a spell-checking quill to write his own name. But the magic is worn off, and so now it says Runal Waslib. And Snape is like, this is your book. Harry's like, this is my book. And Snape's like, yeah? Yeah, why does it say Runal Waslib? And then Harry says, it's my nickname. And I love... To imagine Harry saying that with a straight face. (laughs) It's my nickname. My nickname. And then he's like, it's your nickname or something like that. And he's like, yeah, it's what my friends call me. And then Snape says, I know what a nickname is. (laughs) (laughs) Runal Waslib forever. Thank you, witches, for joining us for another episode of Witch Please. 
Which Please is produced in partnership with Wilfrid Laurier University Press and distributed by ACAST. You can find the rest of our episodes by visiting the podcast section of the Wilfrid Laurier University Press website, or as always, on your podcast listening platform of choice. If you want to hang out with us some more, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Please with a ton of hot new content. Thanks to our Witch Please apprentice, Zoe Mix. Thanks, Zoe. Thanks, Zoe. And special thanks, as always, to our team player of a producer, Hannah Rehack, a.k.a. Coach. Thanks, Coach. And thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You are the reason we get out of bed in the morning. Well, I mean, that and feeding the screaming cats and or babies. Yeah, if I don't feed them, they claw me in the face. Patrons, we love and appreciate you. Thank you so much for helping us reach our goal of 1,000 patrons in May. You made Hannah's birthday wish come true. You did. If you're not already a Patreon supporter, you should, I dare say, consider maybe becoming one. We are constantly adding new content, including some bloopers and comics and also probably more exclusive live events. So you should probably come and hang out with us on Patreon, specifically patreon.com slash a witch, please. If you're not able to contribute financially, but you still want to lend us a hand, we would love if you would drop us a review on Apple Podcasts. That's one of the best ways for new listeners to find us. And at the end of every episode, we'll shout out everyone who left us a five-star review. So you've got to review us if you want to know if it's going to be forever <laughs> or it's going to go down in flames. You can tell us when it's over <laughs> if the high was worth the pain. Got a long list of reviewers. They'll tell you that we're great because they know you'll love this podcast and we love your names. <laughs> Truly my finest work. <laughs> Thanks this week to Rachel underscore loves underscore owls underscore owls underscore owls winky face. All of those owls are going to have hoots, right, coach? Couscous the puss puss and cockatiel kisses. Mm. Mm. We'll be back next episode to continue our discussion of Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. But until then, later witches. Do, 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 do,